We are starting a new series today. Um, Easter is coming fast. How many of you looked at the calendar this week and went, whoa, it's March? Man, time flies. And Easter's coming quickly. And so I wanted to do a series um, as we lead up to this very important event where we consider some of the characters in the story of Jesus' resurrection. What it might have been like from their point of view. How we connect with their story. What we can learn from their journey and how we can be inspired. I want to um, begin by reading 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Paul is writing to the Corinthians because they're arguing about whether or not people really could resurrect from the dead. And of course we'd have that argument today, wouldn't we? Our highly rational and scientific way of thinking these days would say, resurrection of the dead is impossible. And the Corinthians were arguing about that. And Paul writes to them, he says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our Preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Powerful, powerful words from Paul. If there is no resurrection of the dead, there's no Christianity. If there's no resurrection of the dead, there's no point in you being here today. There's no point in me preaching. There's no point in having a church. There's no gospel if there is no resurrection of the dead. Amen? What is, there are lots of implications about the resurrection of Christ, and I'm not going to cover them all today. Hopefully some of them come out as we journey through this series together. But the resurrection of Christ is the central event of Christianity. It's what all of this revolves around. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. He, there were, wasn't just some signs and wonders at his hand. He was resurrected from the dead as the Son of God. And what that means for you and I is resurrection as well a resurrected life, a hope that we have. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then you and I have no hope. We die and fade off into the ether or whatever. But there is resurrection. It is the central point of our faith and our gospel. Easter is the holiday that we use to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Today I want to focus on someone who doesn't get a lot of attention in the scripture Uh, But I found it very interesting to study her. And so we're going to read in Luke chapter 8. And I'm going to read through this whole passage. And then we're going to come back and dissect it bit by bit. Soon afterward, he, he being Jesus, went through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus doing? He's going around from town to town and he's preaching. What is he preaching? He's preaching that the kingdom is here. The king is coming. There's a change happening, and the Jews would have understood what this meant to some extent. They were awaiting a Messiah. They were awaiting someone to save them, and and John the Baptist comes saying, hey, hey, it's time to repent, it's time to get your life in order. Jesus comes along, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, that was his message, and the 12 were with him, his 12 apostles that were around him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And also some women. You know, those ladies, they don't get enough recognition in the story, do they? We don't always hear a lot about the part that they played in Jesus' ministry. 
But I'm telling you, it, you know, he was Jesus, so it probably would have happened without them. But for the rest of the world, it wouldn't be happening if the ladies weren't there supporting in this situation and doing the things they were doing. And I want to focus in on Mary Magdalene today. I want to talk about her story. I want to see myself in that story. I want you to see yourself in her story, who she was and what she did and what she had to do with Jesus' ministry. But I want to point out that it was very, very important in the story of the gospel that we recognize that these ladies were a major part of Jesus' ministry. Joanna, wife of Chusa, Mary Magdalene. You know, uh, Chusa being the manager of Herod's manager. Let's go back and look at that. I just want to talk about that for a second. How many of you know who Herod was? King. He was the regional king, kind of a puppet king for the Jews. His manager, his manager's wife, was a major proponent of Jesus. Susanna, oh Susanna, we don't know who Susanna is. She was also a major supporter of Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene, the passage says marriage, uh, Mary called Magdalene. Why, why would she have that in her name? You know, in the Jewish culture, when they'd put something like this afterwards, they'd say, um, you know, Jason, son of Ben, right? They would say, uh, you know, J.R. of Elliston, J.R. the Ellistonian. They didn't put last names or surenames a lot like we do today. You know, Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. Did you know that? It wasn't like Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and then there was a little Jesus Christ. That wasn't how that worked. Christ is a label. It's, it has meaning. It means Messiah, anointed one. It was a title that was given him. You know, we, we see the names are play out a little bit different, and this is true in Mary's case as well. It's most likely that Mary was from a town on the western shore of Galilee, and we know that Jesus traveled through all these villages, and he's preaching in all these synagogues all around the, all around the uh, Sea of Galilee and down around Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the geography, you would know, but uh, he, Mary would, would have been from a place called Magdala. It also means tower. So it could have even been a play on words. We don't know for sure. But it means tower or elegant. You know, Mary was such a significant figure. You've got to realize that these guys are writing the accounts of the gospel, in some cases, decades afterwards. And they're still remembering Mary Magdalene. She was, she was a force in this party of women. She was a very important player. And so we're going to learn some things from her story. Magdala would have been a, a place of commerce. It's where, in the Roman Empire, two roads kind of came together right there at Magdala. In fact, when uh, the Jews later, after Jesus was crucified, they rebelled against Rome. This would have been around, I think, around 68 to 72 AD or something like that. And they rebelled, and Rome came in and finally had enough. And they destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem. The Jews never had a home again after that until the 1940s, after World War II. That's almost 2,000 years of not having a home. And it's a fascinating story. But they also wiped out this town of Magdala. So there's nothing, there was nothing left. And then, then it became a small community again. In fact, they've done archaeology there, and they found a synagogue there. 
And there's a lot of speculation about Jesus having preached in that first century synagogue right there in Magdala. It was a fishing community. It would have been a center of commerce. We kind of get the idea that Mary actually had some money. And we'll look at that in a little bit. She might have been a money lady. We have money people. People who's, you know, they're, they're generous. They have a gift of generosity. God's blessed them with finances, and they use that to fund the kingdom. And I think Mary Magdalene was one of these people. Here's an interesting statement about Mary. Mary, from whom seven demons had gone out, feel like this should have an exclamation mark after it. You go, what is that? You know, there's, there's four specific stories in the Bible. Mary's isn't one of them. We don't get any details about it. But there's four very specific stories in the New Testament of Jesus casting demons out of people. Spiritual forces of evil that even spoke through the person. There is very real demonic power in the world. Uh, demons manifest themselves through people. They, they're harassers. They're angels that have fallen, angels that have rebelled against God, and they work for evil. Now, again, in the American, uh, highly logical and scientific world, we try and, ah, that stuff's not real. That's, it, mean, it must mean something else in the Bible. But uh, the scripture is very clear that there are demonic forces of evil that work against humanity and work against Christianity specifically. And so Jesus, what Jesus did and what was unique about his ministry is he had authority over evil spirits. This was new. It was new to the world that someone had authority over the power of evil. And so the fact that he was removing these demonic spirits from people's lives was very, very significant. And apparently Mary was one of them, seven of them actually. I mean, how is a human even big enough to house seven demons? I don't know. I don't understand how that works. We don't know necessarily. We come up with different language to apply to it. Are, we, are they harassed, oppressed, possessed? We come up with these different layers of maybe what it means. But at the end of the day, Mary was delivered. And that's really what I want to focus on about her. One chapter earlier in the Bible, you know, well, let's just think about this just a little bit more, the seven, seven demons. I mean, you think you got problems. I don't know, what does that mean? You know, we, we know that the Bible has the seven deadly sins that are listed in there, as they're sometimes called. Uh, sometimes seven represents kind of a completion. She was just completely inundated in demonic things, totally harassed. But seven demons had left her. And it makes me stop and reflect just for a moment on my own life. And I hope it does you too as well. Maybe you didn't have seven demons cast out of you. But at some point in your life, for those of you who have submitted your life to Christ, he delivered you. At some point, why do we sing these songs of worship? That was powerful songs of worship this morning. Why do we sing those powerful words? Because Jesus delivered us. He saved us. He rescued us from something we could never, ever rescue ourselves from. That's a death. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. He's our tower, the scripture says. And as I think about Mary Magdalene's life, I think back, boy, she must have had a lot to be thankful for. Just one chapter earlier, the story right before this one in chapter 7, there's a situation where 
Jesus has gone to a Pharisee's house. Jesus went to the Pharisees' homes. Did you know that? We always picture this thing where, like, Jesus is at war with the Pharisees all the time. But he actually went into their homes. He dined with them. He had conversations with them. Really, in a lot of ways, theologically, they would have been some of the closest people to what he was teaching. And he was trying to overcome some of their thinking. And actually, some of them did believe. But he's in, a, he's in a Pharisee's home. He's in Simon's home, I believe was his name. And a woman of the city, woman of the city, do I need to explain any further, comes in. And she begins, she gets at Jesus' feet and she weeps. And she wets his feet with her tears and cleans his feet with her hair. Is that weird? Yeah. Intense? Uncomfortable? How would that feel? But what she was doing was incredibly honoring of Jesus. And then Jesus says this. He tells a parable. A parable of the money lender. And he's talking to Simon and he says, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So here's the situation. You owe somebody 500 bucks, I owe him 50 bucks. Neither of us can pay it. And he goes, ah, don't worry about it. Let's let's just let it go. It's a gift. Don't sweat it. How many of you could use some of that? (laughs) Can I get Citibank to call and just go, hey. You don't owe me nothing. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Of course, the guy that got 500 bucks canceled versus the guy that got 50 bucks, he's going to love more. I, 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 can I just be a little real here. I'm, I'm looking at this student loan forgiveness and I'm like, dang it, I wish they'd have done that when I was paying on my student loans. And whoever gets the most forgiven will be the most grateful, right? Hey, if you went to school to be a doctor and you got a couple hundred grand in debt, you're going to be in good shape. I'm just teasing, sort of. The one who had the larger debt canceled, he's going to love him more. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who's forgiven little, loves little. When we see that Mary had seven demons come out of her, much is forgiven. Some people have argued in history that this woman was Mary. I don't think that holds up. There was traditional church teaching that said she was also the same Mary that was the uh, sister of Martha, Lazarus' sister, but I don't think that's true either. There were a lot of people named Mary, as we will see in a moment. 
But Mary had so much to love Jesus for. She had been delivered from such a terrible situation. And it makes me stop and reflect and go, where did I come from? What has God delivered me from? He who is forgiven much loves much. And I hope that touches your heart a little bit. The much that you've been forgiven, does it prompt your love for Jesus? Could you see yourself weeping at his feet for what he's done for you? Such a powerful picture of what went on in Mary's life. She loved so much because she's been delivered from such agony. I don't think I have to, I don't think I'm speculating and I don't think I'm stretching the idea to say this woman was suffering. And yet Jesus had such compassion on her and delivered her. Do you see yourself in that story? Do you see Jesus delivering you? Are there things you still hang on to or things that he wants to deliver you from? Remember what he's done for you. Remember how our identity changes. For some of us, you know, it's so radical what God has done in our lives, it changes our identity. And in the Bible, often their names got changed. Remember, Simon became Peter. Remember that Abram, after an encounter with God, became Abraham. Remember that Jacob, after wrestling with God, his name is changed to Israel. You know, when God rescues us, it changes our identity. When all these things, he starts delivering us from our sin, and we start journeying with him, and he's delivering us of oppression and things like that. Life's not perfect. We're always battling things. But our identity begins to change. She's a radically changed person. Another thing I want to mention to you, they provided for them. <laughs> Wait a minute, who's providing for Jesus' ministry? Have you ever stopped and thought, thought about that? If Jesus is going from town to town preaching, and he's got these guys with him, and he's teaching them, how are they making any money? They got to buy food. They might have to pay for lodging sometimes. I mean, I know Jesus went and got the coin out of the fish's mouth, but I don't think he did that every day. Probably could have. Who is providing for the natural means of Jesus and his disciples? These women. Does that make you feel a little bit sheepish? These women who have been so impacted by Jesus' ministry are the ones who are providing out of their means. We just talked about this. Mary Magdalene was from, uh, you know, she's got this name, uh, that means tower, that means elegant. She's from um, this center of commerce, and she's helping provide for these guys. You've got uh, Mary, the wife of Chusa. Her husband has got to be very wealthy, and she's helping resource this. Do you ever think about those little things? You know, there are people that are so important. When my brother was little, he said, he was, I think he was just starting to realize that he was going to die someday. He was just a little boy. And I don't know if he was crying or what he said, but it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those legends in our home that gets repeated every year. And he said, I can't die. I'm the main character. 
just spoken from an innocent little boy going, I'm the main character. (laughs) But life has a way of reminding us, you're not the main character. And when we read this story, we're reading about Jesus and the miracles, and we got heroes like Peter and John, and we don't hear a lot about these ladies. They aren't the main characters. They don't get all the accolade and all the recognition. But this would not be happening without them. They are super important to this story. And I wonder if you feel that way. Okay, JR is standing on the stage and he's talking and people are listening and there's these people, they're like, oh, there's ministers, there's missionaries, there's clergy, there's, I'm nobody. My part of the story doesn't matter. That's a lie. Your part of the story matters. Every person's part of the story matters. Every little thing each one of you do to make this mission happen matters. And it mattered in the Bible. We don't get all the detail, but it blows my mind that this group of women is doing the providing for this ministry to happen. How does this ministry happen around here? You guys are generous. Those of you that give, it's just an issue of generosity. And that's, some people, that's their gift. That's what they bring to the kingdom of God. They're like, hey, I'm, I'm not getting up there and preaching, no way. But, hey, I'll, I'll donate some money to certain things. Some people are called to that. And it appears that that was a significant part of these women's ministry. Let's move on with Mary's story. Mary was there at the cross. Mary Magdalene was. This woman delivered by seven demons. From seven demons. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. She stood there. Now I want you to think about this. This is no small matter. First of all, you've got Uh, This is an execution. This is a torture and execution of a person that Mary loves. Jesus is hanging there on the cross. It's a criminal situation. Most of the disciples have fled. John John is the only one there at the cross, according to the Gospels. Where's everybody else? Where's Peter? Where's Andrew? Where's Matthew? They're not there, but who's there? Mary, at the foot of the cross. What a demonstration of love. I'm going to make you uncomfortable here for a moment, considering this situation. Think about it. Now, we don't like to think about this, but when the Romans crucified people, they were naked. To complete their humiliation and shame, they were completely stripped. They were beaten Jesus would have probably had even bone exposure from flesh being ripped off from the, beat, from the whipping. He was so beaten, he could not carry the cross. And someone had to carry it for him. It was a horrific place for anyone to see. Not to mention there were two other guys there being crucified. Remember, after he was dead, they speared him. Took a spear, thrust it into his body and pulled it out, and blood and water came out. 
he, he would have been suffocating. I want to read to you a short passage. Um, this is uh, by a professor at Azusa Pacific University, Kathleen, or Colleen Schreier. And uh, I would encourage you, if you have the stomach for it, to look this up, The Science of Crucifixion at Azusa. And if you can stomach it, to read it. But I'm going to read you a short passage of it. This is about the science of crucifixion. The difficulty surrounding exhaling leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen due to the difficulty exhaling. So what happens is, you know, most people believe that you would be nailed right through here. Because if they nailed through here, the weight of your body would rip your hand open. You wouldn't stay on the cross. So they nailed through here so those bones would hold you up, the weight of those bones. And just like you see in the artwork, they would have nailed right through the tops of both feet. And then they say your legs would be at like 90 degrees like this. And you'd hang. And you have to do this to exhale. But what happens is you're so beaten that you slowly are suffocating. It's horrifying. But then we've got the situation where the blood and the water flows from Jesus' body. Remember, Mary witnesses all this. The decreased oxygen level due to difficulty exhaling causes damage to the tissues and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart and in the lungs. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocates the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases, cardiac stress the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. Isn't that interesting and horrifying? To stop and consider the, the situation that Mary put herself in. Mary, Jesus' mother. This is her son. Early 30s. Supposed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Deliverer of Israel. She has this angel appear to her. She has all these miracles to talk about. And here he is being crucified. These ladies were committed, devoted. Mary Magdalene loved Jesus so much. See, there was a risk being there. You don't want to be accomplice of this man who they're executing. This is why the disciples aren't there. They think they're next. They're scared. Not Mary. Jesus dies. And we come to... Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, there she is again, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. This would have been the practice of the time. The Jews didn't embalm the dead. They would take these spices and and they would make aloes, basically almost like, I would picture like a honey or a paste, And they would put it all over the cloths and they'd wrap the body so that the body would slowly decay and that would dramatically reduce the um, odor. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus, she says, don't go in there, it's going to smell bad. Because Lazarus had been dead four days, I think. 
not a pleasant thought. And Lazarus was a poor man, so he didn't have the luxury of these spices. But again, why are these spices significant? It'd just be something that maybe we wouldn't even think about. But it was a significant honoring to bury the dead with spices. We're going to learn a little bit about Nicodemus next week, who also contributed to this process. In fact, he brought 75 pounds of spices. And they estimate today that'd be worth about $150,000 to $200,000, what Nicodemus did. But the ladies also, they're wanting to do some anointing with the spices. This wouldn't have been unusual. They wouldn't have normally sealed the tomb right away, like the Romans did, because they didn't want him stealing his body. But they would go back in and do things like this. This is Mary and the other Mary and Salome. This is them honoring Jesus. This is how much they loved him. And again, it makes me think, how much do I love him? Am I aware of what he's really done for me? Do I honor him with my life? I'm not going to be rubbing spices on his body. But I just reflect on how significant it is, this tribute to him. Now there's something too in, in the world of apologetics and defending Christianity that if they were, if they were stealing the body, <laughs> you know, there's all these arguments about they expected him to be dead. They weren't expecting him to be alive. They were going expecting to find a dead body and anoint it. This is just evidence of what their expectations were. I want to now read the account in John. Well, we'll start here. And, the very, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? In John chapter 20, they've gone there. The, the stone's rolled away. They've looked at it. John and uh, Peter have looked at it. And they go back to their homes. The disciples come, the tomb's empty, the cloths are there, the face cloth is there, the tomb is opened, okay, and they go home. But what does Mary do? She stands there weeping. Maybe mid-morning on Sunday, I don't know. The news is starting to spread. They don't know what to think about it. Probably his body got stolen or something. But Mary's standing there weeping mourning this man that she loved. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She still thinks he's dead. She thinks his body got stolen. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She didn't recognize him yet. Maybe it was the weeping and the tears, but we see in the other stories of Jesus after he resurrected, they're like, that's him? Is it him? It is him. He must have appeared a little different or something. They didn't always recognize him right away. Isn't that interesting? Mary didn't recognize him right away either. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. 
She's wanting to resolve the situation. She's willing to take ownership of it. She loves Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Mary. That's all he said. He said her name, Mary. And she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I wonder why John chose to use the Aramaic word here. Just to give emphasis, I don't know. Just interesting to notice. And I wonder and I think about in our lives when when we're weeping, when we're struggling, when we don't see Jesus, if he's right there going, Mary. Right there going, Jay, Bob, Becky. And he says our name. And we go, oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. And how did she respond? How did she respond? Oh, it's just you, Jesus. Oh, whew, you're alive. That's great. No. No, we get the impression here then that, that she clings to him. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my, God, my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So you get this impression, and, and we see this. as Unfortunately, the King James translates translates it him saying don't touch me and we get this impression like no, like she can't I think what, what's going on is the implication here is that she's already clinging to him and we see this in other places they lay hold of his feet and it's kind of this he's like don't, don't cling to me I haven't yet ascended to my father and the way I understand this and I could be wrong about this is that, that he's saying I haven't left yet I'm not gone yet but I can imagine in her heart going I lost you once I'm not going to lose you again she got a hold of his feet She's shocked. How is it he's alive? She's laying hold of him and he goes, I haven't left yet. I haven't ascended to the Father. And we know he doesn't for like five weeks. Five weeks, 50 days. That's how much Mary loved him. And I wonder and I found myself going, do I cling to the feet of Jesus? When I suddenly realized he's right there going, JR, oh Lord, it's you. I don't want to let you go. I'm so glad that you're here. Go tell my brothers. Mary was the first one sent to tell the good news. Mary was. If you were writing a mythological account, trying to create some sort of demigod, you would not put the first message in the hands of Mary Magdalene. Women wouldn't have been trusted as legal, credible sources of information like that. It all draws attention to the authenticity of the gospel, actually, and how real these accounts actually are. But Mary is the one. I, I'm just fascinated. I don't know why. Why did Jesus choose to appear to Mary first? No idea. Because she loved him so much. She was dedicated to him. I'm not into the Da Vinci Code thing. Jesus was not married to Mary Magdalene. Okay, that's nonsense. But she loved him because he delivered her he was her savior, her Messiah. And he appeared to her, go tell my brothers. Isn't it interesting too? He says, my brothers. Go tell them. And of course she does. In many ways, I can see myself, I hope you can see yourself in Mary's story. We don't feel like the main character. We might feel average. Maybe your troubled or broken past 
or current challenges that you are facing and dealing with. Maybe they make you think of yourself as an unimportant character. Mary had a troubled story, but she experienced transformation through Christ. And as you reflect on your own transformation through Christ, maybe you're just saying, I, I haven't had any transformation yet. I'd say, then it's coming. Keep walking with him. Keep inviting him to transform your life. Reflect and celebrate and praise him for the ways he has transformed you. And if he's not, maybe ask yourself, how closely am I walking with him? Am I, am I hearing him in the background go, JR, it's me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. JR, Carter, Jason, Aaron, I'm standing at the door of your life knocking. If anyone hears my voice, are we listening? And opens the door, are we opening? I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Such a pleasant picture of the transformational power and love of God at work in our lives. If he's standing at the door of your life knocking, let him in. Let him in. Let him be your Lord. Let him be rabbi, teacher, master. Respond like Mary. Knocking at the door of your life. Speak in your name. Respond in that way to him. Teacher, rabbi, master. Respond like her. She submitted to her life to him. And he revealed his resurrected self to her. It was a powerful experience. Would you stand, please? If God is tugging on your heart, if he's knocking at the door, if he's speaking something to you, do not walk away. Take the time to open. Take the time to say, teacher. Take the time to let him in and bring that transformational power. We're going to have a prayer team right up here. would love to pray with you. I want to make myself available. If you have that urgency in your heart to open the door, I don't care if you've been saved a hundred times or never been saved or whatever you think about that. If the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart right now saying, open up, and you want to respond in prayer, I want to pray with you today. No matter how mature, immature, how old or how young, don't walk away from the Holy Spirit tugging on something in your heart. Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for the work of your spirit. We thank you for the simple but powerful stories of the people in your story, like Mary. People who we don't know a lot about, can't prove a lot about how, who they were, how they lived, but they were people who were transformed by what you did. And God, we want to continue to represent that transformation. Even today, 2,000 years later, you still are transforming lives every day to those who turn to you and say, Master. And Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that you be ministering to their hearts and minds. God, I pray that people would respond to you. If there's conviction, that they would respond. If there's a tenderness, that you would open their hearts.
God, don't let us leave here unchanged in some way. Move in power, Lord. Thank you for your love and compassion for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Have a great week.